this is Danielle Fisher. Welcome to Melanoma Insights for Professionals, brought to you by Melanoma Institute Australia. In today's podcast, we're focusing on uveal melanoma, a rare form of melanoma that arises from the melanocytes of the choroid, ciliary body or iris of the eye. Despite recent advances in management, more than half of patients develop metastatic disease, which results in a dismal prognosis. Today, we're here to discuss our latest understanding of the diagnosis and management of uveal melanoma. Leading our discussion is Associate Professor Matteo Carlino. Matt is a medical oncologist at MIA and Westmead and Blacktown Hospitals, and is a clinical associate professor at the University of Sydney. Joining him for the discussion is Professor Georgina Long. Georgina is a medical oncologist at MIA and Royal North Shore Hospital, and is chair of Melanoma Medical Oncology and Translational Research at the University of Sydney. She's also the co-medical director of MIA. We also have Associate Professor Max Conway joining us today. Max is an ophthalmologist at the Save Sight Institute, the University of Sydney and Sydney Eye Hospital. Welcome to you all and thank you for being here today. Although a relatively rare disease, uveal melanoma is the most common primary intraocular tumour in adults. Max, perhaps you could start us off by sharing how common uveal melanoma is in Australia and which patients are susceptible to the disease. Okay, thanks, Danielle. Well, look, uveal melanoma is a, a relatively rare condition. It has an incidence of about five to six per million. So in New South Wales, that translates to about 50 new cases per year. Uh, it's interesting, though, that the predisposing lesion, which is a, a nevus in most cases, is relatively common. About 8% of Caucasians have an ocular nevus. The main predisposing factors are constitutional uh, or genetic. Uh, people who have pale skin, skin that doesn't tan very well, people with pale eyes, green, blue eyes. Individuals who have a lot of nevi uh, have an increased susceptibility. And we also see an increased um, incidence in families who have uh, histories of uh, melanoma, both skin and eye. Max, can I ask you a quick question? When you say ocular nevi, are you talking about like a mole in the eye, a, a mole at the back of the eye? Is that what that means? That's right, Georgina. We can see ocular nevi. They can occur inside the eye and on the surface of the eye. They can occur on the iris. But the ones that we more commonly see are the choroidal nevus, the choroid being part of the uvea, the vascular coat of the eye, which uh, is situated between the retina and the wall of the eye, and that's the location we most commonly see nevi, and um, we quite often monitor these patients. So 8% of um, Australians would have this sort of ocular mole, yes. let's say, that's not, that's not a problem, um, and then a very small number, five to six per million, actually get an, what we call an uveal melanoma. Are people born with these nevi in their eyes, or is it like our skin that you can develop them? Some, some of them you're born with, some of them you can develop. Yeah, that's a good question, Georgina. Um, we believe that probably like skin, they develop these uh, nevi during early childhood, childhood and adolescence, and uh, most people are unaware that they had a nevus in the eye. You really have to have a comprehensive eye examination with dilatation to pick up a lot of these, unless they're very obvious right at the at the macula or something like that, they might be picked up earlier. Um, but yes, we do believe they develop just as the skin nevi do. 
And so, Max, moving on, given this is a rare malignancy and many of our listeners may not have seen a patient at the presentation stage with uveal melanoma, how does a patient pre- uh, typically present and how, what's the process of working them up? What's the diagnostic process you go through? Thanks, Matt. Well, look, a lot of patients actually present uh, asymptomatically. Um, uh, a lot of people are having checkups with their optometrist or their eye doctor and uh, they're noted to have a, a lesion, a pigmented lesion often in the eye, which can turn out to be melanoma and they can present completely asymptomatically. When they do develop symptoms though, uh, it, and this really depends on the location of the tumour, the size of the tumour and how much uh, irritation of the retina there is with production of edema and fluid, they often present with symptoms uh, referable to that, so they may present with a field defect, they often present with flashes, they may have associated floaters, they could have blurred vision or they could have distorted vision. They'd be the most common symptoms, pain occasionally, occasionally even a patient will notice or a family member will notice a black dot on the eye, say on the iris, and it comes to attention that way. And the process of working them up, they've often gone to their optometrist and the optometrist has found this concerning lesion, they get referred to you. What's that? those steps of, um, you know, confirming the diagnosis and before you start the treatment? Well, look, most patients we can diagnose um, using clinical criteria. It's a combination of characteristic symptoms referable to the lesion and characteristic signs. It's usually a dome-shaped or almond-shaped thickening of the choroid or the iris. And then we rely heavily on uh, supplementary examinations, uh, investigations, particularly ultrasound. It has characteristic features on ultrasound. We usually um, almost always perform an MRI scan, which melanoma has characteristic features, and it's supplemented with other tests such as OCT or ocular coherence tomography and angiography. Using this um, suite of investigations and clinical criteria, we can accurately diagnose uh, uveal melanoma uh, in the majority of patients without the need for a biopsy. Although I was going to add that these days we often do biopsies for prognostication. And I thought it was amazing how, you know, you have a quite a significant cancer can be diagnosed without a biopsy. That would be quite different to just about any other malignancy we see. So moving on, you've seen this patient, uh, you're confident clinically based on all those tests, you've mentioned that this is an ocular melanoma, you've even got an FNA. Um, talk us through the discussion you have that patient about treatment modality options and how you, you decide on the local therapy. Look, uh, the treatment that we offer depends uh, primarily on the tumour, the size, the location and the patient. Um, obviously, we try to offer a conservative treatment if possible where we can preserve or even save, you know, save and preserve and possibly even improve their vision and save the eye, but occasionally we can't and we have to do a nucleation. But I'd say the majority of patients these days are being diagnosed at an early stage and we can offer a conservative treatment. There are a number of different conservative treatments available. The one we tend to use more often here is plaque brachytherapy, a form of radiotherapy where a little radioactive disc is um, placed on the sclera, the outside surface of the eye. It's very accurately placed over the tumour intraoperatively and that delivers a dose of radiation to the tumour and causes it to shrink away and the plaque is removed and the patient goes home. It can be done under a local anaesthetic so it's suitable for a range of patients even those who are unwell or have cardiac issues. 
There are other options, though. Sometimes uh, the tumour is a bit large for plaque brachytherapy and can, we can offer external beam radiotherapy in the form of stereotactic uh, surgery. And finally, there's uh, surgical resection. This is more suitable to anterior tumours that are towards the front of the eye and uh, we resect the tumour under a little flap of sclera. It's quite a long operation, three or four hours. Patient need to be relatively healthy because of the long anaesthesia, but that's also available. And we'll come to advanced disease in a moment, but um, do you stage these patients for distant disease before you do the local therapy? Is that, is that universal? We do. We always stage patients for disease before therapy, and uh, there are, uh, which I'm sure we'll probably talk about soon, there are some trials available, which some patients are being uh, recruited into. There's a knee of adjuvant trial at the moment where we're looking at shrinking the tumour prior to enucleation. So, um, and of course, if there's more widespread disease present at uh, presentation, it may not be appropriate for them to have um, an eye treatment. They may be better off to have a systemic treatment initially. So, yes, we always stage. And uh, we'll talk to about trials a bit later, but I must, that neoadjuvant trial is, is relatively exciting and shows the rapid translation from some of our advanced melanoma data, uh, advanced UVL data, into the neoadjuvant space. Absolutely. I was just going to um, ask Max, enucleation means removing the whole eye. What proportion of patients do you see where you've made a clinical diagnosis of um, uveal melanoma, which is very multidisciplinary from all the suite of tests you have to do, um, end up with uh, enucleation? Look, fortunately, I probably would perhaps do maybe 10% being enucleated. I'd say 10, 15 years ago, we were looking at maybe 25%. So our proportion is going down as the technology is improving and the options are increasing. And hopefully with new adjuvant, we might be getting that, yes. you know, in yeah. 10 years' time, we might have that number lower again. Absolutely. So, Max, moving on, we know that uveal melanoma in the advanced setting can have a poor prognosis. How do you discuss prognosis with these patients? Um, what factors do you use to inform that discussion? Matt, we look at a, a range of factors. Um, we look at the clinical factors and uh, of the patient, obviously, but the features of the tumour. There are well-defined uh, clinical and histopathologic features associated with prognosis. There's epidemiological features, once again related to the clinical size, but nowadays, we're increasingly doing biopsy to obtain uh, genetic information about the tumour. And when we do that, we can very accurately um, provide the patient with uh, prognostic information, whether they're more likely to develop metastatic disease or less likely, and even perhaps in some cases not likely at all to develop metastatic disease. And so if they do agree to have a biopsy, we can provide quite precise prognostic information. And so just to, for our listeners, that information, we often talk about the classes of UVL melanoma, this uh, class 2 and class 1 and a, a breaking up of the class 1. Um, clinically, um, do you have that discussion? You're, you know, with the patient, your UVL melanoma is class 2, which means your UVL melanoma is a class 1, which means is that the detail of conversation you're having in the, in the clinic room? Look, I think that's a progressive conversation that we have with patients when they first see us and prior to initial treatment. Obviously, there's a lot of anxiety um, on the part of the patient, the family. So we really give them as much information as they can assimilate. 
I usually give patients some broad epidemiological sense of the prognosis and particularly with their clinical type of disease. And then as we develop our therapeutic relationship, also in the multidisciplinary context with the uh, medical oncologists, we dissect down into these uh, more precise prognostic uh, features. If patients want to know that, it depends on the patient, obviously. And some patients elect not to have the biopsy. So in those cases, we're relying more on the historical and epidemiological uh, uh, data for prognostication. Before I ask Georgina and move on to um, you know the risk of distant recurrence and, and, and observation to look for that, local recurrence, is that a common problem? It's very rare, actually. I, I see a local recurrence once every few years. With good patient choice with the primary treatment, the cure rate for the primary tumour is close to 100%. Um, the last time I saw a local recurrence was, you know, I'm having to rake through my memory to think of that. Um, so we're just going to transition now. We've had this patient, they've had their primary treated, and as we've just heard, the, the risk of local recurrence is very low. But we do know the risk of distant recurrence is, uh, you know, for some of these high, variable. Um, Max, which of those patients do you suggest have screening? Which of those patients do you screen yourself, if any, and which do you refer to a medical oncologist? When you say screening, just to clarify for people listening to the podcast, you mean regular scans in time to pick up a distant recurrence? Yes, and I, yes, to look for distant metastatic disease either at the time of presentation, which we acknowledge is rare, or subsequently. Look, I have a conversation about systemic surveillance with all patients, and I recommend at the very least they go and speak to, usually I try and encourage them to see a medical oncologist who has an interest in this area because it's rather subspecialised. Just go and see at least once a medical oncologist, have a discussion about what the future is likely to hold in terms of frequency of visits, the types of scans, where they can be done. You know, some of them are living not in cities, they're in, in remote areas and Sometimes it's not feasible to do certain types of tests, but we can find if they want to do screening, we can arrange these things. But I think the initial conversation with the medical oncologist is very important, and then they can decide what they want to do. They can continue on with the screening. Many of them do decide to continue with medical oncologists to do the screening, or a program can be developed for their GP. And occasionally there's some patients who don't want to do screening, and that's their prerogative. And so that's a nice segue. Georgina, we've had this patient, they've had their primary treated. Max has encouraged them to have a discussion with you, their medical oncologist or soon-to-be medical oncologist. How do you discuss the pros and cons of uh, surveillance imaging? And then tell us what you're thinking about when you're developing a surveillance plan. The, the main thing that drives the whole discussion with the patient is risk of recurrence. So depending on your risk of recurrence, the surveillance program is set up around that. In most instances these days, as Max said, because patients are getting a biopsy or a fine needle aspiration and this is tested, we are able to refine that risk of recurrence based, as you mentioned before, this class 2 
type of tumour, they are at very high risk of recurrence, more than 50%. And there are findings on that biopsy, for example, monosomy 3, so chromosomal changes, uh, BAP1 loss on immunohistochemistry. These are all associated with a very high risk of recurrence. And then if you have a class 1, uh, they're divided into 1A and B, there are some patients within that low risk of recurrence. So in the end, the structure that we think about is high risk of recurrence, moderate risk of recurrence, low risk of recurrence, or unknown risk of recurrence. The unknown risk of recurrence where we don't have a biopsy, if they've had a very small lesion or and they've just had local plaque radiotherapy, um, then we treat them like a high risk. And we discuss that with the patients. And most patients prefer to be cautious and say, okay, we don't know my risk, but I'll go as high risk unless Max has referred and, and, and said, look, all the features are very, very low risk. It's very small, et cetera, et cetera. So we put all those features together. We, it's very multidisciplinary. We do need to find out from the treating ophthalmology team the characteristics of that primary veal melanoma in the absence of tissue and put all of that together to put a patient in a risk category. And then the surveillance is guided by that risk. It's a rare cancer, and this is a moving target, but generally you do scans less than six, six or 12 monthly, basically. Uveal melanoma likes to go to the liver. That's the next point. Um, that is the most common place it recurs, followed by lung, bone, and subcutis or skin. So those are the sites we look for, particularly the liver, 95% um, recur in the liver. And so we do liver-directed surveillance. So every time we are going to scan a patient, whether that be three-monthly initially for a high-risk patient, six-monthly for a moderate risk, and six to 12-monthly for a low risk, we would direct our imaging towards the liver every single time. That may be an ultrasound of the liver or the CT of the liver, the most sensitive and specific is an MRI of the liver. This is not covered, though, by the um, Australian government. It does cost a patient for an MRI liver. So you have a discussion then with the patient about what the best strategy for imaging the liver will be for them. I also like to do a PET scan every second time so that I'm looking at the lung and the skin and we examine the patient as well. So that, that the structure is, in a nutshell, quantify their risk, put them into a high, moderate, low risk category or an unknown risk, discuss that with the patient and then come up with a surveillance plan which is more intense for high risk, less intense for low risk, particularly focused on the liver, but keeping in mind it can go to the lung, bone and skin. And then, so the next step, we've had our patient, they're getting surveillance imaging and unfortunately their surveillance does show imaging suggested of metastatic disease. This patient's got a number of liver lesions. They get a biopsy confirming metastatic melanoma. Georgina, how do you approach this patient 
now that they've got metastatic disease? And I guess particularly comparing it to how you might approach a cutaneous melanoma patient. Uveal melanoma, metastatic uveal melanoma is a very, has a very poor prognosis, even though we are increasingly seeing some activity of drug therapies in this space. It is not like cutaneous melanoma. These patients do not respond to the immune therapies that we use in cutaneous skin melanoma, which work very well, uh, where we are curing or giving long-term durable control in 50% or more patients, we are not seeing the same in Uveal. In fact, a drug that works in 50% in cutaneous works in about 6% of Uveal, just to give you a comparator. So it is an area where we must be doing clinical trials. And so the thinking really is is this patient suitable for a clinical trial or do we have a clinical trial of systemic drug therapy that would be suitable for this patient if they have multiple liver metastases? In some circumstances, you may consider resection of a liver metastasis if there's been a long disease-free interval from their primary and it's in a solitary area of the liver, um, but these patients still are at high risk of further recurrence. An MRI needs to be done at that time so that you can discern what the burden of disease is so that you're not, for example, subjecting a patient to surgery with one lesion in the liver when they actually have small other metastases. And then there's liver-directed therapies we can use. Again, these have all been in what we call single-arm phase two studies. There has been one recent randomised trial, but their impact on survival is not clear. So we need to do more work, and so patients should be considered for clinical trials of systemic drug therapy. And we'll come into some of the treatments that do have activity in uveal melanoma, but I think the really important point Georgina made there is that the activity of the drugs we use in cutaneous melanoma, the anti-PD-1 agents and even combination ipilimumab and nivolumab, which in Australia isn't approved for uveal melanoma, is very different. So that alters your conversation. It also alters the toxicity to benefit profile. I think if a patient starts treatment with uveal melanoma, in their head feeling they've got a 40 or 50% response rate to a checkpoint inhibitor, we've done them a disservice because that number is not 40 or 50%, it's 4 or 5%, as Georgina said. And the other important point is these patients need to be managed in a multidisciplinary setting. That's key. That's absolutely critical because you may mix and match different treatments at different times of their metastatic journey. Um, and certainly with the patients we've shared, our, our multidisciplinary team, we've had patients who have been to three institutions within our multidisciplinary team along their journey, four if you include the surgeon at the beginning. And that's for different clinical trials yeah. that may be operating at one point in time at the, the three institutions that work very closely together. Georgina, I want to move to um, the one drug that we know has a, a proven uh, survival benefit in uveal melanoma and just talk us through um, the activity and, the, and some of the practicalities around tabentafasp. Maybe start off with its mechanism of action, which is quite novel compared to a lot of other drugs people may have seen. So it's an immune therapy as well. It's not a uh, checkpoint inhibitor. It is a what we call a bifunctional antibody. So think of it as a dumbbell. At one end of it, it has a, a molecule that binds to GP100, and that is expressed in uveal melanoma. At the other end of the dumbbell is CD3, which activates 
T-cells or binds T-cells. So the idea is that this dumbbell drug is injected into the body, it finds its way to the cancer cell and binds the cancer uveal cell, and then because it's got the CD3 at the other end of the dumbbell, it can attract in some T-cells that will kill the tumour. So T-cells are our immune cells, cytotoxic T-cells uh, can basically kill uh, tumour cells or any enemies, viruses and bacteria. So that's the concept of the drug. Yeah, and so you've seen this patient, they've got uveal melanoma. Um, you're thinking about Tevantafast. Um, this HLA testing, why are we, why are we testing that? HLA2 patients need to be HLA2 positive, and that's because of the CD3 component of the dumbbell and the activation of the T cells. That activation is linked to patients having HLA2. Now, in the Australian population, 50% of people have HLA2 positivity. If people think of biomarkers for drugs, it's nothing about the cancer. It's actually about the T cell or the immune system on the other end. So this is the same type of testing people do when they're tissue typing a patient for a transplant. So it's a little bit different to a typical cancer biomarker, but this is because essentially the, the bite or dumbbell can't attach to the T-cell, for want of a better word. We tend to do the HLA-A2 testing at the first diagnosis of metastatic disease. We don't do it in the earlier stages. There may be an argument to do it at for very high-risk patients who have all the full complement of um, poor prognostic features, but generally we would do that test. It does cost the patients done through blood banking um, when they're first diagnosed with stage 4 melanoma. Even if we put them on a clinical trial first, we'll have the HLA-A2 result ready for to bend to fusp if needed. Jordan, tell us about this drug. Um, how do you give it the side effects? How well does it work? It is the first drug to show an overall survival benefit in metastatic uveal melanoma. It was compared in a phase three randomised trial to investigator choice treatment, which was often anti-PD-1 monotherapy, and showed a significant reduction in the risk of death. Remembering that most of these patients die within um, 12 to 24 months. So to make a significant impact on that, uh, sadly still people are dying. All up uh, 20% of people, a bit less, have a long-term benefit. We still don't have much more than a few years of follow-up though, but we will be getting that data in terms of the long-term benefit. So it's given weekly. It's an intravenous infusion. Patients frequently will get a rash. A rash is associated with a better outcome, but a rash, they can become hypotensive or get what we call a cytokine release type syndrome, which means they are hospitalized for their first, uh, I hospitalize my patients for their first three uh, infusions so that they can be monitored. Their blood pressure can drop. That's, that's probably one of the most important points. These are very easily managed though as an inpatient as long as the team know what to look for and can anticipate. So they have blood pressure monitoring, um, boluses of fluid and the rash reassurance for the patient but the rash is very common as well. One thing I found really different when I saw the data from this trial and I'd be interested in your perspectives on it is that we have this group of patients who on all our standard criteria, the drug's not helping, they progress. So they've got progressive disease at the first scan. And then we're told, well, actually, someone who progressed on Tevantafasp seems to do better than someone who progressed on 
the control arm, which often was pembrolizumab. And it really was really surprising to me when I saw that data in the audience, you know, for the first time. You know, having treated a few patients now, it's it's really tough to decide whether to continue treatment in that setting. I have a couple of patients now, um, one in particular who's doing extraordinarily well. I think uh, she might even be two years down the track. She's doing extraordinarily well, but every single scan, there's further progression. She feels fantastic. She's living life to the fullest, traveling. As she wouldn't know, she has metastatic disease throughout her liver. Uh, There is a benefit to this drug, even against the standard shrinkage or resist response. We are seeing patients benefit and survive longer than expected. So um, it's about disease control with this drug. The tricky thing is deciding whether to stop therapy because there's fulminant progression. So what I do is I look at the clinical scenario and how the patient is feeling and going, how they're tolerating the drug, and um, if overall they have maintained their quality of life, no pain, no symptoms, basically no symptoms from their cancer, I keep going. Yeah, and I I think... If and when we get these drugs um, funded in Australia, they're currently available on uh, Compassionate Access. I think we may have a situation where we're having MDTs discussions, even for patients who are peripheral, someone in rural New South Wales, where we're having MDTs to decide this really important question, which for other cancers is often not difficult about when to stop. And that um, then comes to the research question of the role of things like circulating tumour DNA, which needs to be explored in this population. So, Max, I've got a, a controversial question. Tibentafast, only drug to have an overall survival advantage. Do you think it will ever be an adjuvant treatment? Could it be an adjuvant treatment? If you, if you use the, the paradigm of cutaneous melanoma, we know the anti-PD-1 agents are active in advanced disease. The next logical question is if do you use that very same drug after surgical resection of high-risk early-stage disease we know that the anti-PD-1 agents reduce the risk of recurrence. And that dogma is, is, is very common in all oncology. Prove a drug works in advanced disease, then use it in early stage disease to, if you like, prevent or delay the development of metastatic disease. Preferably prevent. Prevent, <laughs> yes. I guess with an unusual drug in terms of response patterns, um, do you think it will be an adjuvant treatment or is the answer we're just not sure, do the trial and ask me in five or ten years? I think it's a very good question, Matt, and I think, I mean, in a general sense, philosophically, that's where everything's heading, to be giving patients adjuvant treatment, either before or after. I mean, the problem we've had with uveal melanoma is there's really been, until up until very recently, nothing available. We would love to give patients effective adjuvant treatment, but uh, there hasn't been anything, and it's very exciting that we're now starting to see some potential candidates. So I guess as soon as we have a reasonable level of evidence in, I'd love to see uh, our patients getting adjuvant treatment. I think that's what they need. It's the the last sort of a frontier for this disease to deal with their metastatic disease. Another difference between uveal melanoma and cutaneous melanoma is the preponderance, because of that liver preponderance, the use of liver-directed therapy. Um, how do you decide which patient gets liver-directed therapy and when? And I guess even harder question, which liver-directed therapy? I don't know about your practice, Matt, but we are using liver-directed therapy less and less in uveal melanoma 
We generally start now with a clinical trial or tabentafasp, and that's mainly because liver-directed therapy has failed to show a durable overall survival benefit. First of all, let's talk about what are liver-directed therapies. You mean local therapies. So we have surgery. We have liver-directed chemotherapy um, or chemoembolization for some liver metastases. And then there are some other uh, approaches using a radiotherapy or radioactive surspheres, etc. That it needs to be discussed in a multidisciplinary environment with people with expertise with the liver-directed therapy. So it's often with the radiology team that do a lot of liver-directed therapy, particularly for the chemoembolization or chemo uh, intra arterial chemotherapy through directed through the liver. The times you would use them, I think I alluded to this before, but let's talk about surgery first. Surgery would be where it's technically resectable for in the liver and there are no other metastases. You think you can get all the cancer that is present on an MRI liver with surgery uh, and the patient can um, tolerate surgery. It is big surgery and you've had a disease free interval that's very long so that you wouldn't expect more liver metastases to turn up shortly afterwards. Sometimes people will do a short interval scan before going down that path so they see the first liver metastasis, they sort out that it's single metastasis or in one area that's easily resectable and then they'll do a short interval scan to just check that it remains that way. And liver-directed therapy can also be useful when patients are symptomatic from their um, liver metastases, bleeding liver metastases or pain from a liver metastasis. Uh, it can be helpful in those situations to shrink the liver metastases for a time or prevent further bleeding, which can expand and give them quite a bit of pain with the capsular stretch on the liver. But in general, uh, I'm finding that we are using liver-directed therapy less and less I'd like to hear your views on liver direct therapy too, Matt. So I think there are two clinical questions to liver direct. So the first is a technical question where I think the interventional radiologists are, you know, it is their domain. So technically, is this case appropriate for surspheres? Would taste be appropriate? And I must admit... We are very dependent on just so the audience tastes is trans arterial chemoembolization and the surspheres are the radiotherapy yeah, radioactive of. beads. And so, look, I must admit, as a medical oncologist, I'm very dependent on the um, the interventional radiologist. And my practice is, I literally walk upstairs and camp outside their office until I can look at a scan with them. And when are you doing that? So when are you camping outside? Uh, my bias is a little bit like yours. I consider this is a systemic disease. It clearly got to the liver systemically. So unless there are exceptional circumstances, I think a HLA-A2 positive patient should have TEBI before liver-directed therapy, and I acknowledge others may not uh, agree. And I think in the setting of a clinical trial with significant activity, I would probably prioritise that situation the other benefit I find, and this of having, if you like, some treatment before the liver-directed therapy, is we and the patient get a feel for the dynamics of the disease because there's what the scan shows today but also what the scan will show in two months. So um, if you've had a patient have TEBI and progress, you get a feel for their pace of disease. You can show the radiologist that this is what I'm asking you to treat today but this is actually what the scan was three or four months ago. And to me, that is critically important, both for the radiologist, but also for the discussion with the patient. 
Because you don't want to be subjecting them to liver-directed therapy if things are exploding and growing too quickly, basically, is the point there. And Max, historically, probably before the access to Tebby and and some more active drugs, is this a, a domain that the ophthalmologists were involved in or more through the medical oncologists? I think it's evolved over the years, Matt. I think we've become increasingly involved as this disease has become multidisciplinary. I mean, we're very integrated as a team now uh, with everybody, um, medical oncologists, radiologists, radiotherapists, the initial surgeon and pathologists are working very closely now. And I guess when I started practice, we used to just practice in our little pigeonholes and we kind of sent letters to each other and that was it. But the, the lie of the land has changed very much and that's a good thing. I'd like to finish off talking about clinical trials, but palliation and palliative care in this pa- this patient population, um, you touched on, I think, the conversation being different to your cutaneous melanoma patients. It's very important. Um, they actually often now, as Max said, that the landscape's changed. It's very multidisciplinary. We're seeing them earlier. So us medical oncologists, you know, 10 years ago would never get involved until uh, there was a liver met that often the GP found because no one wanted to survey a cancer that had no options. It wasn't good for the patient. What's the point of picking up something that you can't treat? And so they had a much longer, better quality of life before. Um, So things were picked up when they got very sick and they'd come to the Medonc and it was all palliation. So now things have changed. Our patients are informed they understand the risks of the recurrence in a very different way to what they did 10 years ago. I mean, they knew it was bad back then, but now they sort of come to us early. They're on active surveillance. They're aware that what we want to avoid is a recurrence. And so at the point in which you have a recurrence, the conversation is very different, but you are able to introduce the idea of Let's see how we go, but hope for the best, but prepare for the worst and introduce the idea of palliative care. Now, unfortunately, palliative care are a very strained resource. And so even early referrals to patients where you think they're not going to do too well, just so that they have that support, uh, often palliative care are not able to provide the support until it's very clear that the patient is not responding to any therapies. But it, it is something that is discussed quite early on about their prognosis and the worst outcome. But palliative care is a very important plank in the support, particularly when patients are getting symptomatic. Yeah, and I'd agree with that. I think, you know, we palliative care is critical in the symptom phase, but there's also a mindset. I think that's what you're alluding to, that unfortunately... The majority of people do not do yeah, well. and I, I think that that mindset is probably more critical than the actual, the, the actual intervention from the palliative care physician or team. George, in the clinical trials in this space... Um, it feels like it's evolving super rapidly. If you ask me what's the hottest drug in uveal melanoma pre-ESMO, I might have given you a different answer to post-ESMO. In the advanced setting, um, clinical trials for these patients? Very exciting area across cancer. There's so much happening in terms of effective drug therapies. Um, so if there was only one, there was one take-home message, that is, Clinical trials, clinical trials, clinical trials. If patients are eligible and we have them available, that would be the optimal way to go with a patient with uveal melanoma. And then you can always use the tabentafusp if they do not have success on a clinical trial. Now, it is true, though, first in human clinical trials, phase one, where you have a mosh in of all different solid tumours, 
they're a, a different entity, but they are still very important to consider in this patient population. And when I mean those first in humans, we know that only 4% of those drugs ever actually go to phase two or phase three. So there's a high rate of lack of success in first in human trials as a general principle. But having said that, the odds are against people with metastatic uveal melanoma. They really are. Uh, we're only at the beginning of this wonderful time of finding effective therapies. Tabentafusp is the first of, I hope, many drugs to come. And there are exciting results with some targeted therapies. So these are not immune therapies, but drugs that actually directly kill the cancer cells, whereas the immune therapies get your immune system to do the work. So Clinical trials, number one, exciting space, lots of activity, not just with immunotherapies, but with targeted therapies as well. And definitely important that these patients are at it, treated at a centre that has access to these clinical trials and knows what's going on in the field. Yeah, and I think one of the most impressive things for the international UVL community is that we keep on seeing, I guess in the last few years, Phase one, phase two clinical trials that are specifically designed for UVL melanotion. That, that's pretty impressive for such a rare cancer. And I think, to be fair, hats off to industry because they're often driving some of this. As an example, data on a drug that has some similarities to Deventafasp, you know, early phase data, but it's impressive that we're at least exploring these drugs in what is a very small group of patients. And just to say, any sort of trial activity in cancer can help other cancers. So we're seeing Tabentafusp now having activity in a lot of other indications in early trials. And also the next iteration of the Tabentafusp type drug working in ovarian cancer, etc. We have to remember, although a rare cancer, the learnings from Aveal can be taken to other difficult to treat cancers and vice versa. And, and Max, you touched on um, when you're talking about primary treatment, neoadjuvant therapy, and I, I still am astounded that we've got drugs in neoadjuvant trials uh, today that the metastatic data is so fresh. Okay, so can I just clarify what you mean there? So we have a little bit of data in advanced disease, not a lot, yet we're leaping into the neoadjuvant. Yeah. Shows you the need, but... I'm not sure if the general principles of that is something that the, the ophthalmologists are excited about. Absolutely. Well, look, I think there's, um, there's a couple of aspects. I mean, we've spoken of the possibility, which would be wonderful, of adjuvant treatment to mop up uh, systemic disease. But from a, an ophthalmic point of view, you know, if we can give patients... Uh, say a patient has a very large tumour that's not amenable to conservative treatment, if we can give a neoadjuvant drug that shrinks that tumour down to bring it within a, a size range that we can give uh, conservative treatment, that's uh, very exciting. And I think we're on the cusp of that as well. In fact, we're doing a trial at the moment looking at a, a drug, darabacitib, pre-enucleation to look at the um, response of the tumour to this drug, and we've seen some very exciting early data in small numbers to date. Anatomical preservation is critical, especially when it comes to your eyes. Yeah. And lastly, I'd just like to remind everyone of two very useful uh, resources recently developed by the Melanoma Institute. We have patient information brochures, both for patients with early stage disease, so the patients seeing Max, but also for those patients with advanced disease. Uh, and I think they're critical to allow to guide patients about their disease, particularly we find patients can get a little confused on the internet with regards to the differences between uveal melanoma and cutaneous melanoma. And I've certainly found these brochures helpful in guiding patients about those differences. 
So just to wrap up, I'd just like to thank um, my colleagues Max and Georgina in what I hope people found was an enlightening discussion about uveal melanoma. I think our take-home points are, yes, this is a rare disease. Multidisciplinary care at every stage of the patient's management is absolutely critical. And we are seeing, even for a very poor prognosis disease, rapid advancements in clinical trials. And I certainly hope when we redo this podcast in a few years' time, we'll be having a a slightly different discussion about some of the advances both in the early setting and the metastatic setting. Matt, Max and Georgina, thank you for your time today. That was a fascinating discussion. You have been listening to Melanoma Insights for Professionals, brought to you by Melanoma Institute Australia and made possible by unrestricted educational grants from Merck Sharp and Dome Pharmaceuticals, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Novartis and Heine. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please share it with a colleague or friend and be sure to leave us a review. For more practice-changing education, sign up to our Melanoma Education portal at melanomaeducation.org.au. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.